Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present black and white who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5522. Talking about, you see, you see the world, it's more than confusion, people not knowing who to trust, be oh, wondering why we still can't deal with this world he gave us. Tonight we have a very special guest. Uh, she is a friend of the show. She's been on several times. Dr. Stephanie Harris. Are you there? I am here. Thank you, Leslie. It's so great to be with you this evening. How are you doing? Wonderful. Um, we've, you've done many shows. Uh, you've been doing a lot of work in the community. You've been at the United Nations. Uh, give our audience a little bit of the background because some you may have new people that have never heard of you on this show. So my name is Dr. Stephanie Jean Paris. I'm the executive director of the New Jersey Amistad Commission in but not of the Department of Education. And New Jersey has um, done something that I think is, for the moment, um, extremely important to really change the narrative in American schools. But New Jersey actually passed a law in 2002 that required that African-American history would be included within the K-12 curriculum for the state. And it would be, um, and we would shift the discourse on how students were able to learn about African-American history content. And it would be infused throughout in all relevant spaces from K-12 in all New Jersey public, private, and parochial and charter school districts. And so my office is responsible for um, helping with those infusion plans, with professional development for school districts, with um, resource development, with school-wide audits, um, with lesson planning. Um, We have developed model curriculum for the state that is available on our Amistad um, website 
we actually have an online textbook for teachers and or students to help them really identify and, and know um, some of the in, important historical markers that need to be included and infused throughout each respective um, school district's curriculum and curriculum resources and maps. And so I, I'm excited about the work. Um, it has not come without its challenges now. And uh, in this current moment, when people are trying to grapple with the historic answers to the whys of which we currently live, um, I do believe that this work is all the more important, and I'm glad to be able to do it. Yes, you're doing a phenomenal job. I'm so proud to know you and honored. Um, tell us a little bit about your um, your professional development over the summer for teachers. So for the last um, 14 plus years, we have done, and I'm glad to say that you've partaken in it. And, and I will say it's primarily for teachers and administrators, but we find a lot of community um, community um, stakeholders and those Somebody that are um, in to deliver this to their 
reach their respective school districts and turn key the knowledge by being able to be um, people that can facilitate conversations and help with trainings and be able to be the go-to. Um, so they are our army that we've been trying to um, position all over the state of New Jersey because the state of New Jersey has 600 plus school districts. Um, and so it's a large reach of people that all need to be able to operationalize the Amistad law. Right. And I like when you said strategy. And one of your strategies um, you formed was uh, you sponsored a screening at a movie theater for the film Bell. Yes. So I like it was one of our film screenings. Right. So I love the film Bell. I'm right. also a person that really likes period. So I actually, I can actually admit, I, I watch in my private, you know, in my spare time, movies like Dotton Abbey and TV shows like that. I love historic fiction. I love right. to be able to kind of, envis- you know, envision what it would be like to go back into those moments. Those moments that are shaped by our history, but often shape us that we don't even kind of think about. So when you can, you know, engulf yourself in film, and especially for students, I think it really makes them be able to picture what is on the textbook visually in a really great way. So the film bell, which to be honest, most people have really not invested to be able to see. I think it came in and out of the theaters and nobody really understood the context of the story. The film Bell was actually about the African American or the Anglo, excuse me, Anglo African grandniece of one of Britain's high courts, who is raised in his home as British royalty, 1800, the 19th century. She is the daughter of this uh, high court nephew who impregnates, and we'll use that word um, liberally, a Mm -hmm. young African woman while he's the captain of a slave ship and has this child born on British soil, which means that she can adopt her patrilineal lineage and rights as a child of the royal court which is very different if they're born in any other space except for on British land. Mm-hmm. She would have been immediately enslaved. But because this young woman was born in Britain and she's raised as a child of the royal court, she shifts the discourse and the thinking of this royal family who has to grapple with the dichotomy of um, creating laws that are enslaving those that look like this child that they love, and also wrestling with legal decisions that are deciding um, the fate of others that look like her. That by just the gravity of breast and face arrived in Jamaica or Barbados on a plantation instead of being born and living amongst of the you know, the uh, legality of their royal, her royal upbringing. So Belle is in a unique position to be able to speak truth to power from her own personal experience living in that home when her granduncle is actually assigned the Zong slave massacre case 
which arrived at the British High Court as an insurance claim because the slave insurance policies, and that is something that students always, their eyes get large because they do not understand the far-reaching implications of a global phenomenon, which was transatlantic slave trade, with all of its business arms and all of the modalities in which it touched beyond just those of the enslaver or the transport and those in which they sell. They don't understand that it, it implicates insurance companies that are still in business today. And, right. you know, businesses that made money off of the, you know, the, you know, votes or, you know, sales or, you know, a production and, and that there are an entire European city that, that their entry into the Industrial Revolution was because they were getting contracts and money to supply a 300-plus-year transatlantic slave industry. And I'll say that again, industry. And so while this case arrives at the court, the strategies that we discussed really had students understand those moments in which decisions are made pivotally because of the influence of individuals. And so the positioning of Bell, while that court arrived at the British Parliament, and while it has to be decided, really shifts the thinking of this court officer that has to make up their mind that this insurance claim case, where they have found that there are slave ships, Zong, the people, the sailors on the ship, have systematically thrown more than 300 African people off of ships because they were swinned and wanted to make sure that if they were sickened, that they could still um, assess themselves of their insurance claim. Because if they arrived with six individuals at a slave auction in the Jamaicas or in Barbados or in any other island space, that that would be a wasted dollar value. Bell was able to shift it from simply the dollars to the people. And it actually ushered in the space of abolition in eliminate the transatlantic slave trade in Britain, which of course shifted it to the international territory, which of course shifted it to the Americas by 1804. Did not eradicate slavery, but at least brought, brought the case into the ether and the understanding of the British people because of the influence of this one young woman in this particular home, born of these circumstances, that brought forth the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade throughout Britain. Most people have never known her name. They might see her in in painting where she is depicted um, in the background. But this film was able to bring that to light. And that film is really good about bringing that to the light of students in the classroom. Thank you so much. What an excellent job you did explaining that film. That was wonderful. I was amazed, and this, you know, you had my attention thoroughly. Well, when you said that one woman, one woman um, had effect on that movement, on the slave um, movement, abolitionist movement, we have to talk about George Floyd, one man. 
Um, I'll let you continue. You know, I, I um this morning at the nine o'clock service, I was asked by uh, Reverend Doctor Melvin Wilson of the St. Matthew's AME Church in Orange to actually deliver their message for their youth recognition Sunday. And um, I thought hard about what message I wanted to give to the young people that are at a crossroads as far as their ability to swallow and contextualize what we are seeing be revealed in camera across the nation. And the linchpin that George Floyd's murder was and has unleashed across this American country, but also across the globe in regards to see the rapid mobilization of children and adults around a movement that says no more. It's amazing to me how single occurrences or people in our history have the ability to galvanize people around that enough movement. This is what I discussed this morning on, with that congregation. And my message of empowerment and anointing of this current generation of students to move us mm-hmm. Floyd murder has rekindled and sparked within, I think, a lot of us a space where we have said we've got to have some courageous conversations. We've got to begin to dismantle this mom is the word ideology around confronting issues of race. We've got to begin to really speak truth to power about structural racism and structural ideologies as a nation and as people that have limited our possibilities that have us still in a space in which we can watch someone die on the street. I did a training last week on the history of African-Americans and United States policing. And I think that we are in a very unique and um, necessary moment where history has presented us with the moment well, this is right. an incredible teaching moment for right. our students that we cannot afford. Right. Our teachers need to get on board. Our nation needs to get on board with understanding that the, the students do not understand where we are because they have no idea historically where we've been. And although some of these histories and some of these ideas are terrifying to us because it, it demystifies this idea of this beautiful story and narrative that does not come with complexity and does not tie up in a neat little bow at the end of unit studies. It is a necessary work. George Floyd's murder ties to me directly and the why I think it effectuates us so deeply benign casual killings of Negro acts that was evoked with that first generation that arrived on the shores of Virginia almost 400 years ago. Well, 1669, the state law passed 
in Virginia, or the colonial law in Virginia, declared that because they were deemed real estate by law, that they had been restricted by law to a, a state of enslavement, that the lives of those that were enslaved were so unvaluable that it would not be punishable by death, punishable in any means for them to be killed in any face of punitive um, admonishment. We're still seeing on the street. Right. I don't think our young people can deal. And what is so devastating about it, you know, when you talk about lynching, you know, they only occurred in a certain space. And, you know, the people could take pictures and sell them as postcards. Yeah, without sanctuary. Right. So today we are getting these postcards, if we want them or not, in our cell phones. Anyone who has uh, an account with social media is going to be able to look at the lynchings of all these unarmed black men and they run it in a loop on television 24-7. So this trauma of witnessing... It's trauma. You're right. It's trauma. It is trauma. trauma. And and it's exercised again and again. You know, when we look at even a study in a narrative of the civil rights movement, and 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 I've asked a lot of teachers, we talked about teaching even the civil rights movement through like media studies courses or in other modalities other than what people think of as traditional social studies or history education. Because, you know, sometimes we need to think out the box in regards of how students can understand even our American narrative. So for the civil rights movement, one thing that always sort of strikes me is the utilization of media platforms to really um, expose the reality of things that made it be confronted every day as Americans sat down around the dinner tables in the 1960s, watching things that they, if, if they didn't even live directly in the South and might not have seen it happening in their backyard or in their particular corners, could not dismiss and had to confront and also was able to move the needle on some legislative measures to eliminate them or what we perceive might be the elimination of them out of our American fabric. And by the time we arrived at at, at 1992, when I can remember being a senior in college at University of Maryland and um, watching King incidents, and how it was probably the first time in our modern American sort of media history in which we witnessed what we have now began to see as a repeated trauma about these kind of police incidents being caught on tape since the 1960s, really, by cameras that are shooting it into our homes. Well, I think it's angered us. We've had a lot of protests and, and movements that have come repeatedly every time we go about that cycle. But I think that the immediacy of now with George Floyd, it just has unleashed for a lot of the youth a space of absolutely no more. Is the grappling with, is this the America that we want to continue to be? And he has, he is, will, will 
this particular in- incident. I'm, 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 I don't want to say, I don't, you know, you never want anybody to die under those circumstances. How horrific, how long the period of 8.42 minutes is. So he right. knew he was dying. But right. God has a way of leaving moments. And I believe that he will be in our history book as a demarker of a deep of where we were in regards to finally tackling what I believe started in 1669 in this nation. Wow. Now, let's try to talk about some of the solutions. You, you know, as a, a race, a society, we were able to abolish lynching. And, you know... Um, just recently. Just recently, right. though, Leslie. Right. I mean, that, that, was a, that was a law that was introduced in Congress I believe in maybe 1901 or 1902 for the first time, right, even before that. I, I probably need to go back and even reference for myself. But mm-hmm. I know that it was something that was consistently lobbied for throughout the early part of the 20th century and got no traction. The Dyer Bill, it was called the mm-hmm. Dyer Bill. And the LACP mm-hmm. lobbied. It was, there were signs that were posted every day outside of every end of LACP office to try to get people to understand. We had, we had African-American soldiers returning from war that were lynched in uniform. Mm-hmm. And the United States of America never wanted to federalize and, and have federal, federal penalties for the crime of lynching. Because of the multiplicity of people that were complicit in the act. It is, if you look at the, even the context of the law, anybody that was a witness or even a bystander is implicated. So what, what would it would have meant if they would have been able to have a, a punitive by the law to actually stop people from even engaging in such acts? But look when we passed it less than a week ago mm-hmm. in 2020. Mm-hmm. But right. thank God it's been Right. Um, and can you touch on a little bit about Ida B. Wells and her role? In Ida fighting? B. Wells was a relentless champion. I know that she has danced wherever she is to see this moment finally arrive. She was a young woman. She lived in a community in which she saw that the um, excuses for lynchings were fallacies when she witnessed two of her um, friends and comrades being lynched really and truly because of the success of their businesses, with, but lynched because of the excuse of, of either whistling or flirting with two young white women in town in which she knew that that had not been their crime or while they had been lynched. It was about their, their competitiveness with other white-owned businesses. The irony is, is that because they were in segregated spaces, these African-American businesses were flourishing because they were repatriating that dollar among their community. And there was, there was much less competition. And but the jealousy had her two male colleagues, neighbors, and friends lynched. And she began in the true spirit of her gifting journalistic campaigns. She, she actually ended up writing for the Red Records with the Red Record for the Chicago Defender, where she actually was recording 
instances of lynching. But not only recording instances of lynching across the nation and, and collating and, and, and making sure that the nation was under, understood the people, the places, the things, the circumstances, and the excuses for it. She was also calling out the United States. Because lynching was not just a simple black-white binary. It was something that was happening for across the southern and, and also the northern states in a space of time in which the Americas were grappling with issues of nativism and xenophobia, and therefore you were finding lynchings of uh, citizenships that, of all the others, immigrant populations, et cetera. And Ida B. Wells, in some of her lesser-known speeches, is actually calling out the Americas for paying retribution to Italy and to England and to other states, compensation to keep them from going to war for, because of the lynching of their citizenship in the Americas, while never even dealing with the African-American populations that were within their own borders, that they were ignoring, that were going through the same horrific um, you know, experiences, the beatings, the lynchings, the killings. She was tirelessly as a champion. And because of her work in divine timing, she too finally was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for her work in, within the last couple of weeks, along with the groundbreaking working work of the 1619 Project in concert, in celebration of those works that she did almost 100 plus years ago to bring to light those individuals that were lynched with her red record and her works for the Chicago Defender. Uh, uh, wonderful. Uh, moving on to Paul Robeson. <laughs> One of these, someone that I'm always amazed that students don't even understand. My, my youngest son, who I call my little Paul Robeson, I know he, he totally... He's tired of his mother's with his historic references. He's actually going to be a freshman in September <laughs> at Rutgers University. The legacy of Paul Robeson as the quintessential intellect, a, a scholar, an athlete, a valedictorian of his class at Rutgers University, um, a lawyer, an activist, um, a... a uh, a man of the globe, a Pan-Africanist, who ended up at the, the dawning or the, you know, the end of his years being dragged through the cold, through the, the committees of un-American activities, being marked as a communist, and, and dying almost penniless in Philadelphia. His narrative has oftentimes been... Um, eradicated from students' history of really understanding all of his contributions to American history and who he was and how his life spent almost the first 50-plus years of the 20th century. And he was a touchstone in almost every single solitary. I know that Rutgers University spent a great time last year at, at, at the anniversary of his graduation, the 100-year anniversary of his graduation from Rutgers in New Brunswick, was commemorated with uh, programming and the dedication of a, a memorial space on uh, the College Avenue campus. 
But we have also spent some time with the county executive superintendents and the school districts throughout Middlesex County, have re- which have really embarked on a really in-depth study and lesson plan development and curriculum development for all of their countywide schools, and, and that's also the statewide schools. On learning who this son of New Jersey, this African-American son of New Jersey, this African-American son who was of a lineage of freedom fighters and freedmen in Philadelphia that resides in Princeton, New Jersey, and what he has meant to American history. So I'm excited about that work. Yes, and he uh, he um, he presented a a pamphlet or a petition to the United Nations. Yes, he did. Yes, he did for crimes against humanity. Think about that. We're still grappling with that ideology. We have so many instances of history, and you know nothing is new under the sun. But we all know that. We all mm-hmm. know that. We, there, you know, even our original thoughts sometimes have been been cast, you know, been, been, that are coming out of historical markers, have come out of other historical markers and which have propelled people to do the same thing. And so students need to be able to examine these documents, analyze these ideas, think about what would have happened if any of these movements or these, these you know, these change moments had actually been able to come to full fruition. What world would we have been able to inherit? if we had been right. able to do these things at different spaces. So the courageousness, the activities, the, you know, the galvanization that, that, that were used in moments past need to be understood by our current students, which is why I'm still going to emphasize that they need to understand and see the African-American narrative infused within K-12 history and civics right. and economics and English and mathematics and science so that they can understand that the contributions are not just the slave period and not just right. post-Civil War right. or post-Civil Rights. Right. And you mentioned Princeton briefly. Um, I'd like to talk about Paul Robeson's relationship with Albert Einstein and how they worked together on the American Crusade to end lynching. If you if you know anything about that, that would be great. And I'm also reading here that um, there's a movie that they're working on starring starring Danny Glover as Paul Robeson and Ben Kinsley as Einstein. Give us a little bit. Oh my God, now. I cannot imagine. Is that great news? I can't imagine. I can I mean, I know it's going to be extremely, extremely powerful. You know, what, what, what most students don't understand, and I guess even in regards of the concept of race and, like, the, the falseness of the way in which America has sort of delineated and created, you know, um, hierarchies by race, is, is that at, at every other immigrant group into the Americas at one time was a part of that hierarchy and might, might have been treated in the same Jim Crow restrictions and limitations because of their otherness as immigrant populations. So Albert Einstein, the way we remember him, was not seen in the same manifestation when he was alive in many instances. As a Jewish brilliant professor, 
what behind this is that many of them that came over and were able to immigrate into this nation were not even able to get jobs in a lot of American universities because of their otherness, their ethnicity, their religion. Their ostr- they were ostracized, and they were subjected to the same Jim Crow cruelties. The KKK did not just lynch black people. They lynched Catholics and Jews. They lynched um, immigrant populations. It was a spirit of nativism, a divide of us and them, and a fear of being overpopulated by all these immigrant groups that often propelled them forward. And so Albert Einstein had an standing of why lynching crusades also included his people. He actually worked at the Manual Training Center. He was a guest professor at the Bordingtown Manual Training Center for African-American youth, the only segregated residential public high school above the Mason-Dixon line, which was in Boydingtown, New Jersey, which is now post-Brown-Brooks Board of Education, a juvenile just are now used as a jail. But because Albert Einstein understood, him and Paul Robeson really linked arm in arm on a lot of, a lot of campaigns to try to get the Dyer Bill passed. And unfortunately, we're not able to do that. He lectured at Bordingtown. He lectured and taught at Lincoln University. He lectured and taught at Fisk University. He wrote wonderful intellectual works on America's issue with race and about how we needed to grapple with it to really be able to move forward. People don't really even really examine those works or see him in that light because a lot of students don't even understand those concepts of how that othering really affected then. And a lot of times as we see the resurgence of these ideas affects now how we see ourselves and how we interact together as a nation. Wonderful. And the last topic um, I'd like to talk about is the silent protest against lynching. So, and I'm not too sure. Did they, did they, have they set the date yet? Oh, no, no, no. And from in the 1900s. Um, I know that they were talking about doing something in D.C. I thought they were talking about doing something in D.C. coming up. I know they were talking about a march. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, no. I'm talking, talking about. I'm going to bring that. So you're talking about with the NAACP. Right. Um, NAACP in the 1920s, um, as a part of their political campaign, would often, and because of the reality of so many of their memberships um, fleeing out of spaces of terror across the South and now residing in northern cities as a result of the Great Migration, oftentimes wanted to make sure that the ideas around lynching were brought home in these northern enclaves and cities. And so as a part of their political campaign against lynching, would oftentimes do massive uh, marches in all white attire for people in mourning 
and galvanized mourning for those victims of lynching would walk down the streets in northern cities. What? With signs called names. They were extremely effective in regards to the emotional response. Mm-hmm. We saw that the emotional response didn't move the legislation. And how the nation has come full circle. When you think about even the memorial convention that opened last year down in, um, I believe it's, I think it was in Memphis, right? It's in Montgomery. I apologize, in Montgomery, Alabama, that Brian Stevenson um, and the Equal Justice Initiative was open, able to open. It is creating a reckoning with that history. You know, there's a space in which I'm aware that he has collected the dirt of all of the areas in which they could collect across the nation. More than 8,000 counties, if I'm correct, in which a public lynching, where those public lynchings take place, and they are there. He has markers down at his memorial that he is hoping will be reclaimed by all of these particular towns and municipalities to be able to at least acknowledge and honor those that were done and what was done in those spaces that was extra judicial justice, oftentimes without any kind of due diligence or habeas corpus or all the rights that are under the Constitution that we as citizens evoke when we are accused of a crime but not found guilty of a crime. Because we understand that accusation does not make it fact, and we understand how accusation in most of these lynching cases were used as a subjective way to stir up the fury that brought on these deaths. Fury that, and, and not only deaths, but, but the destruction of towns. We're looking at instances like, you know, Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rosewood right. in Chicago. We can, Elaine, we can keep naming them. Whole towns <laughs> decimated right. over those accusations that were unfounded. And, and that's how I was going to wrap the show up by uh, asking you to um, explain um, why the fury is so um, intense against, um, you know, Donald uh, visiting um, Tulsa on Juneteenth. And um, you talked, you touched on a little bit when you talked about Ida B. Wells in um, in and Mississippi, then, right? In, in 1921, and it's actually my birthday, so I will never forget the date. May 21st, and June 1st, and June 2nd, the entire African American neighborhood of Greenwood, Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, what was considered Black Wall Street, an area of thriving businesses and an epoch and a center for um, a prosperous um, middle class, firmly established generation was burnt to the ground. Over three days of riding and where the African-American population was rounded up, either shot in the street or rounded up and interned in space where they could not protect their homes over the false accusation and rumor mill about an incident in an elevator in which a young African-American male tripped over the feet 
by the young white woman who was the elevator operator. And upon the doors opening was accused. Community knew what could be the fate of this young man. They galvanized and attempted to protect him, which only sparked the, the um, immediate uh, confrontation with white members of surrounding community and the community of Tulsa who immediately were outraged that these young black men had arrived at the jail to actually protect this man. And the newspapers in Oklahoma proclaimed that there was a riot and that citizens of Tulsa needed to galvanize the neighborhood of Greenwood. And almost every home was burnt, raided, or raised. And when, if that was not enough, and if the mob was not enough, the governor of Oklahoma dropped bombs on the homes and the citizens of Tulsa. What, what they claimed was actually stopped the long time coming in redevelopment. Most of their Red Cross claims and insurance claims were never paid out. And their citizenship lived in a very bitterly cold Oklahoma winter. Intense. Juneteenth, of course, is the holiday in which we celebrate as an African-American community when Colonel Butler actually arrived Two years after the, the Emancipation Proclamation announced to the African-American population after the war's ending, ironically, the Emancipation Proclamation that actually in, um, embodies them and emboldens them to walk away from the plantation system because I will never teach, and I do not want any teacher to ever teach that they were freed by Abraham Lincoln. It was a war document. It was a brilliant war strategy. But if you ever read the document, and I encourage teachers and students to do so together, that document actually emboldened African-American populations that were enslaved still in spaces of, that were still under rebellion. Because it's very specific. If the Union Army had already conquered that territory, it could not get read. We need to understand that. The Union Army was only using it as a war tactic in areas that were still under Rebellion under and it was read and emboldened them that if they could make it to a Union Army camp, that they would be received as contrabands of war. And it was read on July on January first, eighteen sixty three, and most other areas. But because of, of Texas's proximity and the battles of the war, it did not arrive by virtue of being read by Colonel Butler until June 19, 1865, when the irony is that the war had actually been was over in April of 1865. But that holiday is celebrated as Freedom Day. Even in some ways, it's almost an African-American 4th of July celebrated first in Texas, and now it's shaping across the nation in a day of picnic and protest, a day in which African-Americans reclaim their space as freed Americans and their ability to feel empowered that they are two members of this nation and can evoke the same 
principles and promises of life and liberty for all. And so to show up in a space in which a city was raised and destroyed over a mob mentality that was caused by an unfounded racial incident, because Dick Rowland was never charged. He was actually released from jail. The testimony that they, the police investigated found out that the accusations of rape were exasperated and exaggerated and unfounded, and yet it did not effectuate what actually happened to a community of citizens that had nothing to do with this incident, but in their success had galvanized the jealousy of the surrounding communities and used that moment to destroy their industry, their homes, their businesses, their way of life, and all that they had built since the Civil War. So you can see, when you see them together, why it would be problematic or why people would have an issue with Donald Trump arriving there to make a speech on Juneteenth in that particular space. Mm-mm-mm. Well, I want to wrap it up with um, something that you said as far as, you know, these two spaces. I look at them as two havens. Um, Ida B. Wells left um, Mississippi and went to Oklahoma because Oklahoma had 50... With the promise. Mm-hmm. Right, it was a promised land prior to it uh, becoming a state. When it yes. was a territory, it was a, a, it was a promised land. It was a safe yes, land. And, and that's why it has thing. the largest number of black towns. The, that's why the, the largest number of the development of African-American towns in the United States mm-hmm. following and during Reconstruction. So it was mm-hmm. absolutely a promised land for African-Americans. Right, and so was Galveston, Texas. The island was the promised land for the, I call them the coward Confederates who did not want to enlist. And in in a um, strategic way of avoiding the Civil War and their uh, enslaved captors from finding out about um, the emancipation, they went as far as they could in a most right. isolated area, which was Galveston, Texas, this island. Right. So could you touch on that, and then we'll wrap this up. It's just that, you know, you understood that, you know, you know when we talk about the economics of slavery, and I think that we, the students also, you know, social studies touch with economics. And for most of them, they, the concept of what, they, how much money it generated, and, and how much foundationally it became a part of our American fabric, not just in the South, but also in Northern spaces that also benefit from the mercantile systems and the, you know, and, and the abilities for it to enter into our um, sort of trade space and, how, you know, it, it connected across the globe and, you know, into our commercial trade and really making America at that time, you know, an impact for industrial revolution. You begin mm-hmm. to understand why, and you know the value of of black bodies. I hate to say it that way, but they were mm-hmm. commodified and valued as large swaths of real estate that really, some in some instances, was the totality of a family's fortune. Mm-hmm. And so, when you saw what you saw happening in Texas, is that those that were avoiding 
um, military service in the Confederate Army, was mm-hmm. trying to at least be able to, to save or protect their family's assets. Those mm-hmm. people that they had enslaved saw the, the, you know, the, the tide of the war beginning to change. They escaped to the furthest space in the Americas at that point to try to shield those commodified people from learning of their freedom. And so yeah. the, the irony of being that far away to try to protect the commodities, you know, students don't understand when you say that, you know, because when you read the textbooks, they'll say, you know, they'll fill out sums like you know, $1,500, $1,800, et cetera. I had my two sons, and I often make my college students actually do um, a, a math problem. And this is where I can say that, you know, stuff like the Amistad curriculum can be expanded into other um, content areas in really sometimes creative ways. It is a mathematical equation to be able to be able to capitalize on interest or to look at, you know, the value of something across a number of years. So I had my son actually do the calculation for what a value of uh, a person that was sold, you know, um, tragically on the slave market in the 1850s, what the value would be if we translated to 20, I think the last time we did it was 2018 or 2019 dollars. And my son was actually taking, um, I don't even know what course it was. It might have been, it might have been an algebra course. Um, and mm-hmm. he translated the $1,500 sale, and he was aghast when he looked at the, at the end of his calculations and realized it was roughly about twenty-five dollars to $30,000 for a single individual in 2020. Exactly. When you think about plantations with 500, 600, 700, even 100, or five people. How much money do we actually have in our bank to actually be able to quantify $100,000 investment, $200,000? And what what does that mean when we talk about why people had political actions to not want to dismantle slavery? Think about the the industry that was built on the backs of those individuals. Mm -hmm. And it's it's being built similarly um, with these... um with this criminal justice system, it's a lot well, of money. I can't even, we, we can't even begin to, we, we would be here for right. another five hours. Right, right. And, so I, and, I have, and I have two sons, trust me, we've had right. that conversation about, you know, being, if you become a part of the system, what it actually means in regards of how you are commodified. Because the 13th Amendment, and I tell my boys all the time, 13th Amendment free unless you are duly convicted of a crime which means it puts you in a state of enslavement in this nation where involuntary servitude is actually legal by virtue of the 13th Amendment. And that makes a big difference in us understanding what happens in a lot of these other systems. Right, right. And, and it, the, the um, uh, Juneteenth, being that it was uh, the holiday is celebrated because of what happened in Galveston, Texas, that used to be Mexico, and we yes, know that Mexico exactly. has. Exactly, we can talk about that. Talk about that. So exactly. Right. So it's, it's, it was wonderful talking to you. Part two will be about the black president of Mexico who abolished slavery in Mexico, and it used to be a safe haven <laughs> okay. for us. And we will talk to you again. Um, Stephanie, I'm going to edit this show. I'll let you lecture. You are phenomenal, um, and you get better every time we interview you. So thank you for giving us your time, and I appreciate you. 
thank you so much for having me, Leslie. I appreciate it. And I would encourage everybody to really invest in understanding the Amistad law and make sure your school districts, ask your school districts whether or not they are evoking it because standards from the Department of Ed are now checking for it. And if it's not being mm. done voluntarily, it should be done at least because of the reality of two-stack checks. And it should be able voluntarily adopted across the nation. And that is my prayer and my plea at this moment. Wonderful. Well, I, I send my prayers up with yours. And, again, have a great night and wishing you and your family the best. Thank you so much. Take care, Leslie. All right. Bye-bye.